So needless to say, we're not going to be back in the Gospel of John yet again, but you can make your way back to the book of James that we were in a couple weeks ago. I invite you to turn to James chapter 3, however, leapfrog chapter 2. James chapter 3, our text for this morning is James 3, 1 through 12, 1 through 12. And as you're making your way there, by way of introduction, I want you to consider with me for a moment a number, and I want you to to picture it in your mind as I give it to you, because it's a large number, so you're going to have to concentrate as you listen to it. The number is, are you ready? 860,341,500. I'll give it to you again. 860,341,500. That is the estimated number of words spoken by the average person in one lifetime. According to a study conducted in 1984 by a man named Giles Brandreth. Now, just to give you something to compare that to in case you're not a numbers person, that would be the equivalent of reciting all 20 volumes of the complete Oxford English Dictionary 14 and a half times. Or for those of you with a King James version in your laps, that that would be the number of words spoken. If you were to read aloud the entirety of the King James Bible, ready, 1,110 times from cover to cover. That's a lot of words. But since then, as you can imagine, since Brandreth's estimate back in uh, 1984, that number has maybe for good reason, come under some scrutiny. There are many who've said, re-looked at it and thought, man, that's that's really high. After taking into consideration other factors, factors like these, for instance, some have contested that that number would be probably different for different languages even and different cultures. Others have pointed out the differences between certain stages of a person's life. In other words, for instance, there probably aren't as many words spoken in the first two years of your life as in, say, year 16 for you parents of teenagers. And yet still others have noted the differences between men and women. I will let you decide which group you think speaks more. Some have even taken into consideration the differences between then, 1984, and, and now with the dawn of the digital age, the dawn of social media, the dawn of the smartphone, when typing is easier, texting is easier, emailing is easier, as opposed to talking. All of that has really eclipsed in many ways uh, a lot of actual verbal communication, though, for our purposes this morning, we would understand that's all considered speech. So in light of those differing factors, update those numbers a bit, more modern studies have come up with lower numbers, still significant, but lower than Brandreth did, who, by the way, if you're curious for reference, 
he based his estimate on the assumption that the average person spoke about 30,000 words per day. For example, in 2007, a British documentary released in the UK called the, the documentary was titled The Human Footprint, in which Nick Watts and his research team suggested that the average individual speaks only about 4,300 words per day. It's a lot less than Brandreth's 30,000. Putting their estimate, if you do the math, at about uh, 123 million words per lifetime, as opposed to 860. That's a big difference. (laughs) Still a lot of words, though. Even, even more recent, though, LinkedIn's learning instructor, Jeff Ansel, ventured a number about 7,000 words per day on average, bringing his estimate per lifetime up to 204 million words, give or take. Now, just in case you're curious, and we pastors talk about this, the word count for a sermon, for me, like this morning, is about four to 5,000 words. Uh, according to the little number at the bottom, the left-hand corner of my Word document. Some of you are already counting down. <laughs> but regardless of what you think, regardless of which one of those estimates you believe to be more accurate, or even where you fall on the spectrum, hey, I'm a 4,300-word-per-day kind of guy, <laughs> Or I'm at 30,000, 40,000, keep going. (laughs) Regardless of where you are on that, the bottom line is, friend, that is a lot of words. That is a lot of talking in one lifetime. That is a lot of talking. Those are a lot of words even in one day. How many have you already used? How many will you use before you die? And beloved, as Christians, our very next thought then should be that God hears them all. Psalm 139, verse 4, you know it. Even before there is a word on my tongue, even before that, behold, O Lord, you know it all, he says. And and not only does God hear and know all of our words, but the Bible says, also has a lot to say to us about our words. Maybe you think of passages right now like Colossians 4 verse 6, let your speech always be with grace. That's hard, isn't it? Always? As those seasoned with salt so that you will know how to respond to each person. Maybe you've taught your kids this, Ephesians 4 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth except that which is good for edification According to the need of the moment, so it'll give grace to those who hear. All of those are good, but I would argue that nowhere, nowhere else will you find more direct and sustained instruction about our speech than our passage this morning, James 3, verses 1 through 12. So I invite you to follow along with me as I read it in our hearing in its entirety, first before we just look closely at it. James 3 beginning in verse 1. James writes, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. 
For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. In fact, look, look at the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires so also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a fire. And the tongue is a fire, a very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who've been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. Well, if James 1 as we heard a couple of weeks ago, was about our hearing. And James 2, if you've ever studied it, was about our doing. As we come to James chapter 3, James now calls us to think more carefully about our speaking. About our speaking. Maybe you've been told this before. Maybe you've heard this advice. Maybe you've given it before. Think before you speak. Ever heard that? It's actually very sound biblical counsel. Listen to Proverbs 15, verse 28. Solomon says, the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. There it is. Think before you speak. Because the the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. May we ponder more than we pour out, right? This morning, if you need help with that, in our text, James is going to help us. James is going to give us, here's your outline, four reasons why we should think before we speak. Four reasons why we should think before we speak. In other words, you could, you could say here, James begins to unpack for us, if you will, some of the reasons why, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, why he says in chapter 1, verse 19, we should be slow to speak. He's going to tell us why here. He's going to give us some reasons. And the first reason that we come to is in verses 1 and 2. Notice, we should think before we speak because of the gravity of our words. Because our words are weighty. They're significant. They matter. 
James is here saying to us right out of the gate, look, there are no throwaway words. Everything that you say matters. You may forget them. Nobody may be there to record, but they matter. They're significant. They're weighty. All of our words in the sense that James speaks of them here are indeed significant and weighty. Whether, whether you know it or not, whether you intend it or not, whether you shout it from the rooftops or you mutter it under your breath in your bathroom all by yourself. Notice verse 1. James shows us the gravity. He shows us the weight of our words first by warning us of the future accountability that they bring. He writes, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. That's why they matter. Now, before you tune me out because you're not a teacher and you think to yourself, hey, you know what? That applies to you Kevin, Carrie, Danny, the elders who do the majority of the bulk of the teaching and the preaching here, but I'm not a teacher. I don't want to be behind the pulpit. Before you dismiss yourself of this command and warning, I want you to notice something. Notice more carefully that James is not actually addressing those who are currently in the role of teacher. You see that? We mistake that sometimes. Look at the text. In fact, notice how the subject... The subject of the verb here and the command is not teachers. To be more precise, what is it? The subject is rather many of you. You. See, James is actually addressing the many of you, the church at large. Yes, you, the majority of Christians The hoi polloi, the normal congregation of believers, those whom he calls here, my brethren. This applies to you. This warning is for you. This warning is not against teachers. It's not against teaching for that matter. This is against people, most people, becoming teachers. You see, there's a difference In other words, his issue is with a church, listen, that fails to ponder the gravity of the teacher's role. His issue is with people who think that is no big deal. His issue with those who sit in the pews, who casually and carelessly speak their own opinions from a position of assumed authority, not realizing that indeed in those moments even their words will bring about greater judgment if they're not careful. Thought about it that way? This warning is for you, Christian. Even if you never become a teacher, This warning is for you. How do we know this is his concern? Again, because notice the second part of verse 1. James lets us in on the basis for his warning. Why should not many of us become teachers? Here's why. Knowing that as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. 
And that's why I said the gravity of our words here is demonstrated in the, the future accountability that they bring that comes with our speaking. Listen, friends, James is reminding us here that the more we say, the more accountable we become. And the greater judgment then we will have to face. That is a fact. That is, you can take that to the bank. There's a certainty. And, and that is why he discourages most people here from becoming teachers. Not because teachers are bad. Not because, because teachers are unnecessary. Not because teachers should not be appreciated. But because, listen, because being a teacher requires... More speaking. Being a teacher means that I have to talk more. 4,000 to 5,000 more words than you are right now. Being a teacher requires more words, more speaking, and along with more speaking, James says, always comes more accountability. This is the equation. Have you ever thought about your words in that way? Beloved, the next time you open your mouth to speak, listen, ponder with me the reality that what you're about to say, you will hear again at the judgment seat of Christ. This is what Jesus himself taught. If you remember in Matthew 12, verse 36, he said, my every, every careless word that people speak, not just the ones that we intend to say, but even the careless ones, Jesus says, we will give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. Beloved, don't be, don't be fooled just because the sound of your words dissipates and disappears almost immediately as quickly as they're heard. Even if you delete that text, even if you scrub that email, doesn't mean your words are of no consequence then because nobody can find them, nobody can dig them up, nobody remembers. God does. In fact, James reminds us here, they, your words are of eternal consequence. We will be held accountable for every syllable we have spoken there's, then you back up and say, there is no greater reason than for us to think carefully before we speak, right? But just imagine next time somebody says to you, listen, the words that you are about to say, just take note, they will, they can and will be used against you in a court of law. I, I would imagine that whatever comes out of your mouth next, you're going to be very careful about what you say, the words you choose, if you speak at all. <laughs> Christian, not just Christian, every soul, there is a coming heavenly court. You will stand before God as your judge. You will answer for every word spoken. James has already said in chapter 2, verse 12, so speak then and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Solomon would say to us, Ecclesiastes 12, the very end of his book, you remember, he says, here's the takeaway. After all that the, most, that the wisest man ever learned, here's what he said. For God, remember this, will bring every act, and we could have every word 
to judgment. Everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Beloved, remember, you will stand before God. You will answer for your words. Consider then the gravity of your words in light of the accountability that they bring. But notice verse 2, how the gravity then and the weight of our words is not only shown by the accountability that comes with them, it's also shown, James here says, by the maturity that they reveal to us. You could say, not, not only are your words weighty and significant for what is to come for the future, they're also significant for the present as well. Right now, look at verse 2, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, James calls him here a perfect man able to bridle the whole body as well. Look, if you weren't convinced earlier that James has all of us in mind here, not just teachers now in verse 2, it's kind of undeniable, right? We are all included here, for we all stumble. Not just teachers not just pastors. And alongside greater accountability for our words, then James, notice, adds here greater liability and opportunity for sin. But this this is what Proverbs 10, verse 19 teaches us, right? When there are many words, transgression, it's unavoidable. Listen, the reality is, the more we talk the more we sin. And so James is saying here that one way to measure a man's level of spiritual maturity, one way to know what his religion is like, one way to measure his sanctification, his level of holiness is to listen, is to listen how self-controlled he is about his speech. That's what James means here by the word perfect. He's not speaking of sinless perfection. He's just referring to a state of being mature, a mature man. It's the same word that he used back in chapter 1, verse 4, to describe the result of those who've been sanctified by trials. Beloved, the mature Christian is the one who, who, who most often... James says here, is able to avoid stumbling, or in other words, sinning in what he says. How self-controlled are you with your speech? It's a good measure of our maturity, James says here. Now, this is why James is able to write earlier, chapter 1, verse 26, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but it sees his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Look, I don't care how much theology you know. I don't care how much you've studied. How do you use your words? But someone might legitimately ask at this point, though, how is it, James, that you can say that we can measure a person's maturity level merely by listening to them talk? And James's answer here then points us back to the gravity of words, it's to the gravity of our words, to the significance of them, right? If, you, if you're asking that question, then perhaps 
you're not giving words the due weight that God gives them here, right? We just notice at the end of verse 2, James says, The one who can control his speech, bridle his tongue, demonstrates to us that he's mature enough to then control the rest of his life. You see the connection James is making there? I mean, you tell me which is more difficult, okay? Let me ask you. Is it harder to keep yourself from leaving your house and going and committing murder of your enemy... Or is it harder to stay in your house and just curse them under your breath, behind their back? Which is harder? It's easier, of course, to sin with our mouths. And so James's point here is, look, if you can keep yourself from simply speaking evil, which is the harder task, then you'll be able to keep yourself from carrying out that evil. That is his point. This is the gravity of our words. Our words are significant. They matter. Not just because of the accountability that they bring, but the maturity that they reveal in us. So, beloved, think more carefully next time before you speak. Consider, ponder very carefully the fact that your words do indeed matter Give them the due weight that God does here. But notice a second reason why we should think before we speak, not just because of the gravity of our words, but also because of the potency of our words. The potency of our words. Verses 3 through the first half of verse 5, notice what James says here. Now, if we put bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. But just look at the ships also. Though they are so great, And are driven by strong winds are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body and yet it boasts of great things. Stop right there. Perhaps you've heard the saying before, the pen is mightier than the sword. Anybody heard that? Pen is mightier than the sword. Well, here James James would agree with that sentiment. James would agree, and he adds to that some imagery of his own. Two vivid illustrations that really need very little explanation, but he tells us anyway what the point is in verse 5. The point is this, listen, our words, your words, may seem small. Sometimes they're insignificant. Sometimes they're easily skipped over. But we must realize they're more powerful and influential than we think. That's his point here, right? Both, both of these illustrations serve to highlight this reality about our tongues. Uh, in case, like me, you didn't grow up around horses, <coughs> uh, although more of you probably have uh, here. But bits are apparently these little horizontal bars of wood or metal that are placed into the horse's mouth between the incisors and the premolars, which are then connected to the reins in the rider's hands so that with the slightest tug, 
even the strongest species of stallion can be led around the whim of its owner. It's amazing. A little piece of wood in the mouth. In the same way, James says, consider the relatively small size of a rudder on a massive cargo ship at sea. I mean, how's how this small, flat, hinged piece near the stern of the boat, usually two of them, one on each end in those days, can be used in the hands of the pilot to keep even the largest ship under the most severe external conditions at sea, even that little piece can keep that ship on course and under control. It's amazing. Small in stature, but great in power. And James applies this then to us and says, so also your tongue, your words. Do you consider that before you speak? Listen, beloved, with a word, Jesus calmed the sea, you remember? With a word, Isaiah 50 verse 4 says, Jesus can sustain the weary. One word. A timely word. Words are a powerful thing. Proverbs 18.21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. And the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs 12.18. You know, it can also cut. It can also wound. It can also tear down and destroy as easily as it can build up and edify. You know this. If you've been hurt ever by someone's speech, what they've said to you, they may not have laid a hand upon you. You know how powerful words can be. Next time, before you speak, James says, think carefully about the potency of your words. You know what James says? Next time, before you speak, go ride a horse. Go sail a boat and ponder just what kind of impact even the smallest of your words can have. Listen, not just on yourself and your own soul, but on others as well, which leads us to the third reason why we should think before we speak. Notice we find this in the second half of verse 5 through verse 8. Third reason We should really think before we speak, not just because of the gravity of our words or the potency of our words, but also because of the tendency of our words. Do you know your own tendencies? Look at what James says about your tendency, verse 5, middle of verse 5. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beast and birds of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. You see, having told us now that our words are consequential, 
and that they are indeed powerful and influential and full of potential. Look, James now turns a corner and he reminds us yet how often their tendency is towards that which is sinful and harmful because of our fallen nature. That is his point here in this section. And you, you remember, this is illustrated even by what the prophet Isaiah spoke and acknowledged when he encountered God. You remember Isaiah 6 at his commission, he sees the Lord in all of his blazing glory and holiness. What does Isaiah cry out? Woe is me, for I am ruined. Why? Because I am a man of unclean lips, of all things that Isaiah chose to say. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. What an appropriate description of us. This is our tendency. Beloved, your tendency, the tendency of your words is towards depravity. It's just what the Bible teaches You can't get away from it. In fact, notice how all the descriptions here now in these verses gives James. James is no longer positive about the human tongue. And once again, we, as you heard, we we, we find two vivid illustrations in in this section. This time, both drawn from the natural world, no longer speaking of human innovation and technology. These illustrations are drawn from the natural world, both highlighting then the wild and the destructive nature of the tongue. That's what connects these illustrations, right? Wild fire, wild animals. Notice first, fire is such an apt analogy for our words because it is only helpful and beneficial when it's what? When it's contained, when it's under control. I mean, you've seen the footage of those fires out in California. Thank goodness we don't live there, right? Fire is helpful, but not like that. And it gets loose, and it's allowed to spread unchecked. Notice James, James calls it here, what does he call it? The very world of iniquity. Or as one, as one author put it, it's a, it's a microcosm of evil, right? Everything contained in that act, speech. Think about that. Any and every sin can be captured and committed in essence through our words. And James is reminding us, look, if you can speak it, then you, are, you can be guilty of it. Microcosm of evil, it's a very world of iniquity is bound up in our speech, our tongues. But not only that, he says, notice, he says, the tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body. In other words, James is saying, look, this world of iniquity, it's not just out there. Guess what? It's in here. It's in here. It's set among your members. Look, Christian. We carry about us the spark of sin in our very members. 
Jesus taught this as well, Matthew 15, verse 18, when he said to his disciples, but things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile a man, not what you eat, not what you put in your mouth, it's what comes out, that defile. James is saying the same thing here. So from parent to parent, if you're a parent this morning, just listen to me, you cannot guarantee that your child will be safe from the temptation to sinful speech just because you shelter their ears. You must also shepherd their hearts. And then notice, James says, part of that shepherding includes helping them to realize that, look, if we're not careful, notice what James goes on to say here, if we're not careful, their unchecked words will set on fire the course of their life. And they'll look back and realize that it will have been set on fire by hell itself. You ever see someone's life in shambles, a pile of rubble, a heap of burning ashes? James says you can follow them back. You can trace the habit of their life and probably find sinful speech everywhere you go. James adds to this first illustration a second also from the natural world in verses 7 and 8. And he speaks of the tongue there, not as a wild fire, but a wild animal, a wild and untamable animal. Notice verses 7 and 8. Look, have you ever thought about this? It is amazing, isn't it, to me? The kind of control, the kind of rule that mankind has been able to achieve over the animal world. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever watched those National Geographic shows and been like, that is amazing. How are we not ruled by some of these creatures? But it makes sense to us, right? Because of Genesis 1 and 2, this is God's design to exercise dominion over the earth. It is as God has said. So despite the, imagine, despite the imagination of those who created the film The Planet of the Apes, we, we could easily see how, we could easily imagine, right, how animals much larger, faster, stronger than us might have come to dominate the earth. But instead, it is mankind that rules Now, that's, that's a settled fact. Even, I mean, he, even if zoos continue to have accidents and we still read of lions killing safari tourists, right? The, the lions aren't running those tours. <laughs> James says, look, this, despite all the control, though, that mankind has been able to achieve over the animal world, here's an amazing thing. We have yet to tame our tongue. In fact, notice how James describes the tongue here, a restless evil and full of deadly poison, picturing an unstable, unpredictable, and deadly wild animal, one that you should really never let your guard down when you're around. But you think of, you think of, 
the snakes that are out there. This language, of course, reminds us of Psalm 140, verse 3. They sharpen their tongues as a serpent. Poison of a viper is under their lips. Paul would pick that up and use it in Romans chapter 3 to speak of our depravity. Listen, friend, the, the, you must understand the tendency of our words is towards depravity. If you don't understand that, if you don't believe that, then you're probably going to end up saying some things that you will regret. You know, some of you think, hey, I, I, I typically just say whatever's on my mind, whatever naturally bubbles up in my heart. James says, don't do that. Understand that your tendency is towards sin, that your speech is like a fire. Wild animal. This is why we should think before we speak. Your words are not neutral. They don't come from a place of neutrality. Left unchecked and untamed, they will, they will not stay put. They will not stay safe. Like a wildfire and a wild animal, our words have a tendency towards destruction and anger. So, so we, we should be slow to speak. We should be slow to speak. But lastly, fourth reason James gives us here why we should think before we speak, not just because of the gravity of our words, the potency of our words, and the tendency of our words, but also because of the testimony of our words. Notice verses 9 through 12. James goes on, with it, that is our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who've been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing, my brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. Look, in these last few verses, James is mostly concerned about our testimony How's your testimony? You say, well, hey, I declare from the rooftops that I believe in God. I worship Him in everyone's view. Well, James says, notice, well, that doesn't matter if you curse men. James is concerned about our testimony, but he says here it's very clear that the greatest threat to our testimony as Christians is hypocrisy. It's not the doctrinal statement that we've signed. It's not what we say we believe. It's not even what you do when you come to church. Because guess what? You could go home and you could act quite inconsistent with your profession and ruin your testimony. Notice how James highlights the absurdity, the inconsistency, the hypocrisy of doing two completely opposite antithetical activities with the same mouth. He says that with our words, we both bless God and at the same time, we turn around and we blaspheme men. And because of that, we fail to realize just how hypocritical we are. Because after all, notice his reason here, the same men have been made in the image of God. The God we say we're worshiping. Listen, your testimony 
is not just seen in what you say to or about God, it's also seen in what you say to and about men. I mean, what a thought. Just think, have you ever thought about that? Just set back and think about this for a moment. James is exposing the fact that you cannot compartmentalize your speech like that, right? You can't imagine that some of what you say is an act of worship and the rest is not. No, all of it, all of it is an act of worship. All of your words are a testimony to your faith in Christ or lack thereof. You know, I find it so interesting here that James draws on the doctrine of the image of God in man and applies it to the use of words. Beloved, did you realize? Let me put it this way. Let me connect the dots. Did you realize that that the reason why we are against killing unborn babies in the womb, it's the same reason you should be against slander. It's the same reason you should be against lying. It's the same reason you should be against name-calling, demeaning others with your words. Consider, James would say, it is hypocrisy even to insult, to demean, and to call names those who, let's say, vote differently than you and Maybe support, maybe even support abortion. It's hypocrisy to be hateful in our speech, even towards those people. We imagine they are committing a great offense against the image of God and man, and here, so are we. James says, what kind of testimony is that? Imagine that your worship is much better if you're going around cursing men who've been made in the image of their creator. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. So, beloved, may we think more carefully about the use of our words. May we ponder then what ought to be, that our lips should always be in service to God, our King. We've been bought with a price. Christian, you're not your own. Your lips, your mouth, your words, your tongue, they're not your own. And so you should glorify God with them at all times. But notice James ends this section again uh, with a couple of illustrations from the natural world. So vivid. One, One illustration of the fountain and spring and the other of a tree, both highlighting the absurd nature of speaking out of both sides of your mouth. We understand that idiom. And the imagery here really reminds us of another passage in Matthew 12, you remember, where Jesus uses the same picture, the tree, to teach us about our words. Just don't flip there, just listen. Remember he says, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. And he applies it then to the Pharisees. How can you, being evil, speak what is good? 
For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. The evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. It's the same imagery here. So let me ask you then this morning, just to close, what is the testimony of your words? Beloved, what, what fruit have you borne? Examine yourself. I'd encourage you to do so. Examine your speech this morning. Go back through your emails. Go back through your texts. Go back through your posts. Think back on the conversations you've had recently. Hear and heed the warning that James is giving to us this morning. Think carefully and ponder love the gravity of your words, the potency of your words, the tendency of your words, and the testimony of your words before you open your mouth. My friend, if you've, if you've never thought about your words in that way before, then consider now. And one day you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and everything that you have ever said, listen, all 860,341,500 words will be brought and you will answer to your God for what you have said. What will you say then? Because my friend, unless you turn to Christ, unless you come to the one who's, as 1 Peter 2 says, committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth, Unless you come to him who himself bore our sins on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Unless you come to him, Matthew 12 says, by your words you will be condemned. You know, in that day, there's, no, there's going to be no talking your way out of that one. And there will only be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But there's hope Friend, if you come to Christ, if you come to him today, not only will he, not only will his blood speak for you, but he will give you a new heart and he will set you on a new path. He will give you a new tongue and he will fill you with his spirit that you might speak on his behalf the rest of your days. Would you pray with me? Father, we do confess this morning with the prophet Isaiah, we, we are men of unclean lips, living among a people of unclean lips. We know that all too well. And so, Lord, our plea is like the psalmist, to set a guard over our mouth. Keep watch over the door of our lips. Let the words of our mouth, the meditations of our hearts, Be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Father, may we always be those who think carefully, who think biblically before we speak and make us those who use our words to make your name great, not ours. Forgive us, O God, for we stumble in many ways, but we thank you for Christ who spoke perfectly, who by his word gave us new life. Now strengthen us to live and speak for him. In his precious name we pray, amen.